0: chapter 4, and we're going to begin by reading verse 4. Verse 4 says this, Around the throne, that is God's throne, there were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with gold crowns on their head. We can only speculate um, that these 24 elders... um, uh, we can only speculate who they are. There there was um, a moment last Sunday where I talked about this very briefly. There is, There are some scholars and theologians that think that it's the 12 representatives of the tribes of Israel from the Old Testament, as well as the 12 apostles who helped build the church in the New Testament. Um, but that theory ends up falling flat when you realize that the apostle John, who is witnessing this vision... Is still alive. <laughs> so I mean it is possible that he could see him his future self, but that seems a little bit hard to um to try to bring flesh to. Um, so I think, um, and I, I stated this last week, that these 24 thrones, 24 elders on these thrones, uh, that they are part of God's divine counsel. And I gave the overview of that concept last week from passages in the Old and New Testament. If you missed last Sunday's message, please, please go online and listen to it. Um, You will need it for the rest of this series because we'll continue to reference it. But let me say this. The divine council is made up of created supernatural beings that attend, assist, and advise as well as serve God. There's some incredible places in Scripture that talk about this, and we looked at one of them specifically. And if you weren't in uh, on last week's message, I'll tell you, it's 1 Kings 22. Go home and read that today, um, and then feel free to call, email, text your thoughts and questions, uh, because it is pretty amazing that God has advisors. That is not to question His sovereignty. That is not to say that they rule or that they are um, deity or have been eternal. They're not even angels. They are created supernatural beings that attend, advise, assist, and serve God. So that theory makes sense to me. But again, it's speculating because we're not given any identification about who these 24 elders are. We don't have their names anywhere throughout the book of Revelation. We don't have that stuff. So, uh, in addition to the two mentions that happen in Revelation 4, there are three other references, and we're going to read those real quickly because that's going to lead us into the rest of the message today. Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, they show up. It says this, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and which we'll talk about today, and the 24 elders fell down and w- before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Revelation chapter 11, verse 16, they're mentioned again. It says, and the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God. Now, listen to me and stay keyed into this today. There's something very important that I have to say. And that is, when you read the Bible, God wants you to use your brain. (laughs) Can I get a louder amen? If you're awake today, say amen. Okay, so if there are thrones and there are beings on those thrones that are wearing crowns and white clothing, then they are in a place of authority of some sort. But they cannot be angels because angels are never depicted throughout Scripture with a crown on their head. So you've got to be able to use your mind as you work through God's word. Revelation 19 verse 4 says this, And the 24 elders and four living creatures, they seem to be pictured together in all of these references, they fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. So we may not have been given the identifying information of who these 24 elders are, but I can tell you one thing for certain. Every single time they are mentioned as the 24 elders, they have one primary behavior in the presence of God, and that is to worship him and him alone, amen? They are not to be worshiped themselves. They are givers of worship, amen? So verse five, chapter four, verse five, here we go. Verse five, it says this, from the throne, God's throne, came flashes of lightning "...and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before, that is to say, in front of, before the throne, were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God." I want you to just stop there. I don't know if you've ever considered this or read through this portion of scripture, but seven spirits of God, I've heard of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit what is John talking about? We're going to dive into that today. Look at what verse 6, the first part of verse 6 says. It says, and before in front of the throne, there was as it were a sea of glass like crystal. So I want us to break down and, and work through each of these Images or things these elements that show up here so in verse 5 it says lightning rumblings peals of thunder these things that that John is witnessing and or hearing and feeling and sensing they're associated with the presence of God elsewhere in the Bible. In fact, these things are called theophanies or appearances of God. One of the primary references that would be that you could go home and read over today would be Exodus chapters 19 and 20. When God shows up to give the Ten Commandments, there is storm phenomena that happen and earthquake elements, and those things will keep reappearing throughout the book of Revelation. Here's something interesting to think of. The God you serve that we sang about this morning is sovereign over your family, your career, your life path, your mate, your geographic location. He's sovereign over the storms that come. He is sovereign over nature itself. And so we we need to understand there is theological messaging that John is giving to us throughout here, helping us to see, okay, so anyone who received these letters, those seven churches and even us now, the 300 millionth gathering of believers since those days, whatever it is, when we look at this, we should immediately be thinking back to, wait, this is the appearance of God. And so this is exactly what John is communicating. But he says something interesting there in verse 5. He says, in front of the throne, the, the word before means in front of. So in front of the throne we're burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. So fire is another stock element that shows up in Scripture with the presence of God. I want you to think about the burning bush. Do you guys remember that from Sunday school? The burning bush or when the Israelites were being led through the wilderness, the Bible says that they were led by a cloud by day, day, which is awesome. God was providing shade for them and he was also leading them to a place where they would eventually call the promised land. And it says by night, he didn't leave them alone. Hello, there's something amazing about the God of Israel who's always with his people. Even when they rejected him, he still walked with them through the desert. This is hope for you and I today that our God, is is never without his people he is always with us and he says he will never leave us or forsake us but it says that he led them by a pillar of fire at night during their wilderness wandering i don't know if you've ever experienced in the same day a hot day and a cold night but i have anybody else raise your hand Okay, sweltering heat during the day and then all of a sudden the temps drop 30, 40 degrees and at night you're sitting there like this, (laughs) shivering. God was bringing warmth and light and direction to his people in their wanderings. So now John is seeing what he is calling seven burning torches of fire and he says they are the Spirit's of God. There's no issue with the translation there. There's nothing super deep there. He literally says in the original language, seven spirits of God. But I want you to be thinking about the menorah that we talked about several weeks ago of the seven flames that would be on the menorah, that seven branch menorah that was always sitting in front of the Ark of the Covenant where the presence of God was. It's said to represent the presence of God among his people. Isaiah chapter 11 says this about the seven spirit or seven, uh, let's say, characteristics of the spirit of God. It helps us understand this. Uh, If you look there on your screen, you'll see Isaiah 11 verse 1. There's a messianic prophecy about Jesus. The prophet Isaiah, who will reference Isaiah and Ezekiel today... But in this passage, he says this, There shall come forth a shoot, talking agriculturally, from the stump of Jesse. So Jesse is the man who we know from the Old Testament scriptures. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Verse 2, it says this, And count them. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom The spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. These are seven characteristics. Yes, the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, Jesus says, is a comforter. He'll be with you when I leave you. God says all of those things through Jesus, but this is hearkening back. I believe that John, what he is seeing, could very well have been clicking in the minds of any one of those people who were believers saying, Wait a second. I think I remember there's this prophecy about Jesus from the Old Testament that says that he'll come and it mentions the spirit of God also again using your brain I don't know how studied you are in the Bible but I've really studied it I've studied it backwards and forwards there's many of you in this room who've been saved longer than I've been alive so I don't profess to be any great scholar. But I'm going to tell you this. I've never once found a passage where the spirit of God, Holy Spirit, is ever mentioned as being enthroned or seated on a throne. But we do see imagery of God the Father and the Lamb and the Son, the Ancient of Days. We see those images, but we don't hear this. So knowing that and using my brain... The seven torches, and John clearly says, those seven torches of fire are the seven spirits of God. I believe that is recognizing, helping us to see that the Holy Spirit is present in the throne room of God. This is vital. I don't know if you have Catholic roots, Baptist roots, Lutheran, or otherwise, but the holy spirit is real and he was real in the old testament he he was present at creation the bible says the bible actually says in early genesis that he assisted men and women to learn things they never knew before that's amazing Like we're talking about trades, the ability to create and craft things. The Spirit of God helped those people. He did not only do that, but he spoke through the prophets of old. And then he was gifted to the church because Jesus said, I love you too much to leave you alone. The Father is sending his promise to you. Now, how ridiculous does it sound for God to have sent a promise to just a select few and then pulled the carpet out? That would be terrible and terrifying. In fact, if God, if I could say it like this, if God's presence was not somehow present on the earth today, we would not be in the state we are. We need the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. He is not expired or just for them then he is present. Presently working on the earth today through believers just like you and I. So this helps connect some of the imagery that John would have been very familiar with. His readers would have been very familiar with. And now you can say you are very familiar with. So look at what it says though at the beginning part of verse 6. It says, and before or in front of the throne, there was as it were a sea of glass like crystal. Now I'm told by someone who's more educated than me that this is a simile. Okay. The word like is a preposition. Okay. He says there as it were a sea of glass. So he's not saying it's an actual sea of glass. And he says it looks like crystal. So I don't know if you've ever enjoyed a sunny day by a body of water that was still. And the shimmer and the light that came off of it was near blinding. I mean, it just incredible. So I want you to picture that. Uh, it's almost reflective of sorts. So if God's presence, and we're already reading about what happens in his throne room, and there's worship going on in the previous messages, in previous verses, there's an a emerald rainbow, there's amazing, shiny, bright things and then John says, and there was, as if it were, a sea of glass. So I've done quite a bit of study on this, and I found that there's a majority of scholars who have studied those ancient languages. They believe that John was describing, listen to me closely, because this might twist your brain a little bit. They believe that John is describing the firmament above the earth, upon which he was looking down because he was in the throne room of God at the highest of heights. So God's throne room is situated in the firmament. The Bible says, and that's not a word that we use all the time in our regular everyday casual language, but we know this from the Old Testament. The firmament was conceived as a solid dome over the earth in ancient cosmology. So in Genesis chapter 1, verse 6, it says this, that God separated the waters below from the waters above. And so God in the Old Testament, according to many places, including Job and Psalm and the book of Psalms, it says he walks upon the vault of heaven. The vault is his firmament. Psalm 29, verse 10 says this, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. There is no flood going on in David's day. So what is David talking about? He's talking about the imagery that they have in their mindset. And you have to remember this. When you read the Bible, it is not a science book. so I, I, That gives you a little bit of balance. You say, well, pastor, that sounds kind of skeptical, like you're encouraging skepticism. No, I'm telling you, these people were pre-modern They were pre-scientific in their understanding of the earth and of the world. This is what they understood, and this is how they communicated. So here's what happens in Psalm 29, verse 10. It says, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. In other words, there are waters up there above the firmament. Amos, chapter 9, verse 6. God builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth. So this dome that they continue to refer to rests directly above the earth and God lives above that highest height. Remember this in a few minutes when we start talking about the four living creatures because you're going to need this because there's some very weird language used there too saying that they are full of eyes in front and behind. So now we jump to the second part of verse 6, chapter 4, and we're going to read in one fell swoop all the way to verse 11. It says this, and around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Verse 7, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them, had six wings. It says they are full of eyes all around and within and day and night they never cease to say holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. There is a concert going on in heaven According to our clock and the way that we understand time, we would say twenty-four seven, Around the clock, there is a concert of worship happening. And it continues in verse 9. It says, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor, and thanks to him who's seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever. Verse 10, They're joined in by the 24 elders who fall down before him, who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is incredible when you when you just try to close your eyes and imagine this magnificent but strange and wild, interesting scene in the throne room of God. That there are these beasts, creatures that you've never heard of and never imagined, never seen before that are worshiping. There's these 24 unnamed people, b- beings who are seated on thrones. And there is this constant rotation of worship of God. Now, there's a reason why God gives John this as the first image to continue through the book of Revelation. Here is what I think the basic point is. God is the one who created all things and he is sovereign over all things. Which means when he starts doling out punishments and handing out rewards to the righteous. But giving punishment to the nations and the rulers who have attacked his people. And we're not just talking about national Israel. We're talking about the persecuted believers as well. When he starts to do that, he has every right to do that. Because he is enthroned above all things. Amen. I want you to attempt to comprehend the the vastness of this creator. I put together a slide that I want you to look at. I don't know how well you can see these images, but the God that we serve that created, the Bible says the heavens and the earth, created whales the size of football fields, gnats that are barely able to be seen by like your human eye without a microscope, Gorillas that are just incredible creatures. Giraffes, longest necks in the world is so wild <laughs> that he, he did that. I just, I don't understand how he put together the beauty of the creation that we witness and see when we go to a zoo or travel to a foreign land. In Japan, there's this man right there. He's holding the world's largest crabs. They grow in a certain area off of the coast of Japan, and they span 12 and 13 feet. (laughs) Nope. I don't want some spider-looking creature coming towards me when I'm swimming in the ocean. And I don't know if you've ever seen this, but I used to love like in, well, I've always loved nature. I've watched nature. So like when I'm bored, I don't watch the news. I turn on like nature movies and shows. The platypus is so wild that it has like a hardened beak on this furry animal. Your God created you with fingers and toes and a beating heart. It's amazing when you consider the things that you've already witnessed. And so is it any real stretch of the imagination that John is witnessing something very interesting and wild in the throne room of God? That have been these unique creatures that have been created in order to worship and serve him? It's amazing. And I thought about this as I was putting together my message and doing research this week. I was thinking, you know, we talk all the time about that place in scripture where it says, you know, don't hold back your worship, because if you hold back your worship, even the rocks will cry out and praise me. God is saying, I will get the worship I deserve, whether it comes from you or not. But might as well come from you. So when we sing... Don't worry about lifting your hands. Just don't slap your neighbor in the face when you do it, okay? Not about that. Get yourself some space. It's okay to sing even if you can't sing on key. It's okay to sing even if you, even if it's not your favorite song. (laughs) It's okay if you don't even know the song. You can just jump right in. You say, well, pastor, you're making it a big deal. Because it's something you'll do for eternity. Worshiping God. Yeah, (laughs) we better be ready. And I understand. Let me just get on a soapbox for a second. I understand the whole message series in churches the world over about worship is a lifestyle. It's not just about singing. I get it, and I've even said it, but listen to me. It's about holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He's worthy of power and glory and might. All honor and dominion are his. I'm using the voice that God gave me to declare, and that helps me understand, and it really helps me put myself in the right position. So not only am I serving a purpose for him, but I'm actually, if I could be, if I could be so casual and say I'm demeaning or diminishing myself by saying you, you are the one. So then let's join in. <laughs> Next time you get an opportunity. Now I'm, don't wreck the car in the ditch. And pastor, I was listening to K-Love and my favorite song came on. I lifted both hands and I started shouting. Pull off into a parking lot before you do that, okay? We we want you to worship God. God wants you to worship him. There are several places in the Old Testament where prophets are able to get a sneak peek into the throne room of God, and they describe the supernatural creations and creatures that they see there. The references for this are on your screen so that you can write them down and read them in their fullness later. Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel chapter 10. These aren't the only ones in scripture, but these are three very significant, very detailed places. And Isaiah chapter 6, which I have referenced briefly last week, And then as well, John is recording one that we're seeing in chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation. To begin with, it's important for us to be reminded as we're thinking about the throne room of the building of the tabernacle and its furnishings during the Israelites' exodus from Egypt during their 40 years that they were in the desert. I was thinking about that this week, Don, and the replica that your uh, students had built so many years ago that you let us borrow for a time of the tabernacle setting and all of the images, the little furnishings. It's amazing to think about God giving them a design of something so that he could meet with them. I know we understand now that it's not about these four walls. We are the body of Christ. But back then they needed a place that they came to. And we still want a place to come together and worship him. But there's a connection here that should not be missed. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, you say, Pastor, you're all over the Bible, because it all ties in. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5 says that these things, the furnishings and the tabernacle, wait a second, serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, that's the short way of putting what we call the tabernacle. The tent of meeting he was instructed by God, saying, "See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain i don 't know if Moses had any kind of design interior design expertise to offer, but God is making sure that he didn 't put his his flare." His taste or his flavor on this. God says to Moses, you better do exactly as you were instructed. I gave you the dimensions of the stuff. I told you this got to be dipped in gold. This goes before this thing. This gets set here. You put a fence around this part. You put a curtain up here. Now do these things because they serve as a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. So the Ark of the Covenant is not just a box that Indiana Jones goes looking for. Okay. The Ark of the Covenant was a piece of furniture in the tabernacle. And I want to show you a picture, a replica of what it looks like. I want to point something out to you. These extensions here that you can't see would be long poles that, how many of you have ever seen a picture like this? Okay. Many of us, but some of you may not have. So I'll go through it very quickly and just explain to you. These poles were meant to be the handles... For the priest to carry the Ark of the Covenant. So in the Old Testament it says the Ark of the Covenant went before the people. When the priest stepped into the water of the Jordan River. It opened up and they crossed on dry land. It's because of things like this. Okay, Now they were instructed to never touch the actual Ark itself. And there's actually a story about a man who very uh, casually just thought he was going to do something nice. And he went and touched the Ark of the Covenant. And he was not supposed to. And the Bible says that he was killed on the spot. You say, wait a second. That doesn't sound like the God of love and grace and peace that we serve. Well, listen. It's the God of justice and the God who is sovereign. Who gave very specific instructions and said, don't do this. And some dummy did it. And then he died. That could be a lesson for us. Okay, so right here... There are two creatures, and if you'll notice, their wings okay, are touching. These creatures in the Old Testament, in Exodus, in the instructions given, are actually referred to and called cherubim. It's the plural of cherub. Now, you might think of cherub being the little guy on the fluffy cloud during Valentine's Day, but this is not the case, Okay. So I want you to notice the top of the ark where these two-winged creatures are. And the Bible gave specific instructions, God did, that their wings should be touching. The top of this box, the Ark of the Covenant, was called the mercy seat. Seat. And if you can imagine, their wings touching form a place that would be a throne. This was what God intended for them to understand, that he came to dwell with them. He did it through elements of nature, like fire, clouds, smoke, all the things. But this is very important, because this imagery continues to show up in other places in Scripture. And we're talking about the four living creatures that John is seeing in Revelation. But other ancient Near Eastern civilizations that served false gods... also had things that they called, or we can call throne guardians, that protected the throne from any enemies. So if the deity was not on the throne at the moment, and he had gone to do war against a nation, these throne guardians would guard the throne so that no one could usurp the authority of the false god who they served. Those also, these throne guardians, these other creatures in these other religions, were meant to protect the deity from any harm. (laughs) Is anybody using their brain right now? Okay, This is not the same for the God of Israel. For the God who we now call our own, clearly he needs no protection. He is the most high God. Amen. There is nothing that can surprise him, no enemy that can defeat him, the Bible says. And the creatures in his presence are doing his will and his bidding, and they're constantly engaged in worship. They're not trying to protect him from the devil coming to get him. This is the God you serve. It's amazing. So Ezekiel's vision in chapter 1 of Ezekiel and chapter 10 include these things, these elements that you see called cherubim. And he also, if you've ever read that passage, includes some other strange language, including eyes in the throne room of God. If you can imagine a throne uh, that was on wheels, essentially, that's how Ezekiel describes the throne that he sees Isaiah's vision includes something different, differently named than these cherubim. It includes something called seraphim. Now, seraphim are the, it's the plural of seraph. And seraph literally means fiery serpent or burning snake, like burning serpent, okay? The word seraph appears in numerous places in the Old Testament, always about a natural snake, In fact, they're referred to in the ancient times, again, pre-scientific, pre-modern. They're referred to as winged serpents. Because if you've ever seen a cobra and his head expand, they imagined those things as wings. So they're called seraphs. In fact, the, the Bible says that God sent a plague on his people. Because they were disobeying him. He sent a plague while they were in the desert and they just escaped all the plagues in Egypt and now they're having to be dealt with because of their disobedience. So God sends these physical snakes that actually it it could be said that the reason why they're called fiery or burning ones or serpentine like that um, is because of the fact that they would be venomous and it would cause pretty pretty quick death but you would have some torment before that happened. Isaiah uses that word that is used throughout the Old Testament of natural snakes. And he uses it in describing what he sees in the throne room of God. When he says in Isaiah chapter 6, if you read that whole passage, he says he, he sees these things and they flew serpentine sort of creature and it flew with a coal and touched his lips. It's very interesting. So Ezekiel seeing some strange creatures. Isaiah has seen some strange creatures in the throne room of God. And now we hear John, who has been talking in Revelation chapter 4, about what he sees as these four beasts with different faces, but they've got wings and so Let's briefly talk about the element of the eyes, though, mentioned in Revelation chapter 4, as well as Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 10. Go back with me to Revelation 4 and look at verse 6b, the the end of 6 on your screen. It says, The four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, And then verse 7, it describes the one was like a lion, the one like an ox, the one like a man, the one like an eagle. And each of them had six wings and are full of eyes all around and within. Then, thinking about that, thinking about the eyes specifically, Old Testament scholar Daniel Block says this, The word translated as eyes in Ezekiel as well as in Revelation, could be understood to be sparkling or gleaming. I want you to follow this path for me for just a second. I want you to know that there's more in the Bible than you realize and that some of it needs interpretation. That's why we're in the book of Revelation. This is not your pastor calling into question the legitimacy of a literal Bible that has literal images in it. But I want to share with you what a scholar says about the use of the word eyes in Ezekiel and in Revelation. He says it's the same word used for stars. Again, if what John sees is in the highest of highest places and he's looking down, he is seeing these creatures in the throne room of God, and he's seeing the sea of glass. He's seeing stars. Ezekiel is seeing them move in a cyclical pattern, just like constellations do. So stars are referred to as sparkling or gleaming throughout ancient literature, and the ancients called stars eyes and thought of them as living Entities And constellated stars were referred to as full of eyes and were perceived as animate beings like people or animals because of their synchronized movement in the cyclical path around the earth in the universe. So I'm not saying that they were not actual eyeballs. Okay. But I'm telling you there are scholars there that notice there's a connection between the idea and imagery of it being a brilliant place with so many sparkling things and that also it's possible the eyes are real eyeballs and it could be the same thing. It can be a both and it doesn't have to be an either or. Does this make sense so far? We're almost to the finish line. I know, but you've probably heard this before and seen it and thought, really? Okay, so they just have eyeballs everywhere? What about the eyelashes and the eyelids? And how, where, Do they go to the bathroom? Do they eat? How, like, I mean, like, how how are you covered in eyeballs? This is strange, okay? So if you read Ezekiel and you see that connection in Revelation, Ezekiel says there's wheels within the wheels and that there are eyes on the wheels and they're moving. He's... By most scholars' opinion, they believe he is seeing from above our universe and seeing them move in the pattern that God put them in. It's amazing when you think about that. So the best understanding of the throne room scenes, though, from these prophets' visions in the Old Testament and John's vision in the New Testament is to say all this, that God is enthroned Above all things. He is sovereign over all. He rules and reigns. Listen to me, church, from a high place where everything he has created is visible to him. He sees and knows the things that you are going through in your life. The Bible says he knows the days of your life. He knows the concerns of your heart. He knows the issues that you have at work. He he is a personal God. If you have your if you have a problem wrapping your mind around the image of a lion-headed serpent looking filled with eyes beast thing in heaven, Can you just stop and think about how amazingly significant it is that God knows you by name? And it's, and you're not just a number. He doesn't just say, okay, 4,572,000 number. You know, he literally, the Bible says all of our days are known by God. All the details of our life are known by God. This is significant to us. That he is sovereign over all things. So when they're seeing the throne room scenes from God's point of view, like in that, in that place, it must have been magnificent. That theological message is consistent throughout all of those throne room scenes, regardless of where they happen, Old Testament or New Testament. It always is pointing to the fact that God is sovereign. He's sovereign over time and history. If the eyes are not eyeballs but stars, if then God is sovereign over the constellations and the movement of the pattern of the planets of all of those things. You say, Well, we've got amazing satellites and uh you know imagery and things, and we've landed on the moon, if you believe that we do. We're not getting into that today, okay? We've landed on the moon okay? We've traveled to these places. We've sent things back from these places, but we still have never reached the place where God is. And our minds cannot fathom how vast and wide the system of galaxies and universes total that God has created. It's amazing when you think about it. And when you think about that creator is the one who loves you, and is concerned with the things you're concerned about. He's concerned about your pet that's sick. He's concerned about your, your issue with your family member. He's concerned about the health of your family member. Any and all of that is, co- is combined under that heading of God being sovereign overall. And the reason why this is so important, I think that John is given this imagery at the very beginning before we start talking about a beast and a dragon and the murder of her baby and all of this crazy stuff that comes up in Revelation is because we need to know God is the one who's in control. Ezekiel was telling them it's not the God Marduk over the Babylonians. He's not the one who's in charge here. Even though you're in exile and even though God lets you go there because you were disobedient and you're serving out your punishment, God still sees you and he's coming for you. He's coming for us too, and I say that with a smile on my face because you and I as believers have hope that he's coming to bring us to himself once again. Now I preach this message today so that you could tell all of your friends and coworkers at church that you heard the craziest Mother's Day message ever, okay, on Mother's Day. <laughs> Uh, We're working through the book of Revelation and we'll continue to do so um, throughout uh, however long it takes us. You say, this is great and and wonderful that uh, we've talked through what the significance of these things are, but I'm really struggling with believing that God is sovereign over fill in the blank. I want you to stand with me today. And I really believe I don't, just, I don't just get paid to say this. I really believe that God wants to set you free today. He wants to help you today. His Holy Spirit wants to comfort you today. I believe with all of my heart that God wants to offer a solution today that you've never thought about before that God could drop into your life. I believe he wants to help you with your attitude problem. I believe he wants to help you with your pride. I believe he wants to save. The Bible says that Jesus was sent to Seek and to save those who are lost so that they could be found and join the family of God who will be with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. So maybe you're away from God today and now you have the the opportunity to come and to receive prayer and to acknowledge and say, God, I want you to be sovereign in my life. Maybe you're here today and you're hurting and you just want somebody to pray with you. I promise you that our prayer team, I say this often, they're not gossipers. They're not going to call it Sister Betty and tell her what you came to pray for. Um, I'm confident that there is something amazing that happens when someone joins you and agrees with you in prayer. So if you want prayer for any reason whatsoever today, as they begin to sing, I want you to step out to the side, the left or to the right, where you can receive prayer today. If you don't need prayer and you don't want to step out, that's fine. If you're staying in your seat, let's worship the Lord. Use your voice. I don't care if you sing on key or not, and neither does God. Amen. Lift your hands, lift your heart as we worship him.